Hi and welcome to Malicious Life, in collaboration with Cyberism. I'm Ren Levy. Could you start off by briefly introducing yourself? Sure, Nate. My name's and uh, I work in the cybersecurity industry. I've been doing this uh, job for over 20 years. Out of concerns for privacy, in today's episode of Malicious Life, we'll not be disclosing the name of our interviewee. For purposes of telling the story, though, we'll call him Randy. We also can't disclose what company Randy was working for about two decades ago when our story takes place. What I can tell you about Randy is this. He's a lot like many of you out there. He joined the cybersecurity industry at the turn of the millennium. He had a knack for computers, but otherwise was pretty much just getting the handle of things. A bright-eyed kid trying to make something of himself. His first break in the industry was a job with one of the largest software companies in the world. His second break, early on his tenure there, was a very big assignment. I was working for a very large organization that gave me the opportunity to, from an engineering perspective to learn about something of this scale. And I was, I was a young kid, so I was really interested. Here's where Randy isn't like a lot of you out there. He was only recently out of college when his new employer sent him off on a foreign assignment to help build the single most significant cybersecurity asset on the planet. Did you have a sense of just how massive and impactful the project was going to be? Firstly, from a technical standpoint, and secondly, um, from the political standpoint. As I went into it, I had no idea what it actually meant for the people. I just knew that it was a, a very big opportunity from an engineering perspective, and then I'd get to work with the, all the new shiny tools and technologies that were available to me, and it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I didn't know um, about the, the rights and freedoms of the individuals um, or, or anything like that. The only consideration was you're going to go and build the biggest, tallest, strongest wall in the world and you're an upcoming architect or you, you know technologist are you interested and i was like oh yeah for sure like any bright-eyed bushy-tailed kid as it were would be if that makes sense um so i went into it uh believing i was doing the best i could from an engineering perspective so you were excited absolutely super excited and I'm happy to do the best job I could do. You can sense why a budding 20-something IT expert would have been excited about such a project, right? He was only just recently out of school, being flown to another country to use some of the shiniest, newest technologies out there in service of one of the biggest cyber projects ever undertaken. What reason could he possibly have had to turn down the offer? Actually, there was one reason. In this episode of our program, we're covering the single largest, most pernicious internet security asset on the planet, the Great Firewall of China. 
the Great Firewall is just mind-bogglingly big, repressing freedom of speech and information for over 800 million Chinese internet users every year. For context, that's more than the combined population of Europe. Not the internet-using population of Europe, the entire population. The Great Firewall is so big that it's worth asking how did the Chinese manage to build it in the first place? 20 years ago, our InfoSec technology was much less advanced than it is today. China was a second-rate technology power, not even comparable to their position today. Most of all, a firewall like the one they proposed had never existed before, or for that matter, since. How then did they pull it off? The answer, to some degree, lies with Randy. There was a point in history when the Chinese nation could have transformed into an open democracy. It was when hundreds of thousands of Chinese people, led by a generation of young students, centered in the Tiananmen Square area of Beijing in 1989 to call for economic reforms and political freedoms from their government. But of course, we all know what happened next. Please remember June the 3rd, 1989. The most tragic event happened in the Chinese capital, Beijing. Thousands of people, most of them innocent civilians, were killed by fully armed soldiers when they forced their way into the city. Among the killed are our colleagues at Radio Beijing. The soldiers were riding on armored vehicles and used machine guns against thousands of local residents and students who tried to block their way. When the army convoys made the breakthrough, soldiers continued to spray their bullets indiscriminately at crowds in the street. The cold murder of possibly thousands of innocent civilians could have, under normal circumstances, been a nightmare for the Chinese government. But actually, from the government's perspective, you could argue that their invasion of Tiananmen Square was a resounding success. The popular protests, which once might have seemed unstoppable, suddenly ended. The state recaptured control of its capital city and over the following years took measures to suppress information about what they did to get it. Crack down, take control, suppress the story. You can attribute much of the success of China's communist ruling party to this tried-and-true formula. Take, for example, June 1998. If there were ever a point since the Tiananmen Square protests when the Chinese political system could have changed, it might have been that summer of 98. A group of activists representing hundreds of pro-democracy advocates and former Tiananmen Square protesters filed to officially register their own political party. They were denied. Beginning the very next day and continuing for the following year and a half, members of the now illegitimate Democratic Party of China were systematically arrested. Crackdown, control. Then there's step three. Suppress the story. 
Historian Merrill Goldman, in Chinese Intellectuals Between State and Market, indicates how latent democratic movements like this concerned the ruling class. Though quite small, if such groups were able to get their message out and enough people took interest, they could threaten single-party rule in the state. The problem would only be compounded by a new technology called the Internet, which promised greater and freer exchange of ideas among Chinese people. The government would need a way to prevent quote-unquote harmful ideas from spreading out of control via the Internet. You probably see where this is going. But it's not quite so simple. There was no instance, no person or board meeting where somebody stood up and said, how about we build a giant firewall? In reality, it took years of ideas, technological advancement, and fine-tuning before such a thing could even be conceived of. China's first major step towards Internet censorship was a regulation issued by the state government in 1996 regarding international Internet connectivity. Translated, it reads, quote, To carry out international networking of computer information, the output and input channels provided by the Ministry of Posts and Telecommunications in its public telecommunication network shall be used. No units or individuals shall establish or use other channels for international networking on their own accord. End quote. After just two years of free and open internet, China made it law that all extranational connections had to make their way through a government agency. A choke point, in other words. This would make it easy to monitor and potentially block anything going in or out. Then, around 1998 or 99, a new organization formed within the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology called the National Computer Network Emergency Response Technical Team slash Coordination Center of China, or CNCERT slash CC for short. CNCERT's name is hardly the only confusing thing about it. For example, its website states that it was founded in 2001, when in fact it was operational as early as 1999. We know this in part because a man named Fang Binxing in his online bio stated that he began working for CNCERT in 1999. And Fang is, by far, the organization's most famous employee. Back in 1989, when government protesters were filling Tiananmen Square with messages of economic reform and political freedom, Fang Binxing was finishing a PhD in computer science. Though the protests were student-led, it's probably safe to assume that the young computer scientist was not a supporter, as he would later come to represent much of what they fought against. In 1999, Fang earned a position as deputy chief engineer at CNCERT. Much of what occurred inside CNCERT is unclear, but whatever was going on, Fang was at the heart of it. Within a year, he was promoted to be chief engineer and director of the center. 
He was such a good employee that just one year after his big promotion, he was given a, quote, advanced individual award, as well as a, quote, unquote, special allowance directly from the state government. In a state-sponsored media profile, Fang Binxing was denoted the, quote, unquote, father of the Great Firewall of China. It must have seemed like an honor at the time, but it soon became a curse. The name stuck, and Fang became the nationwide face of Internet censorship. The closest equivalent for us in the U.S. might be Ajit Pai. Remember that guy? Remember the, what we might call, negative reviews he was getting in 2017? Fang Binxing was the Ajit Pai of China. And Chinese people were quick to tell Fang what they thought of his work. In 2010, he created a profile with Sina Weibo, China's equivalent to Twitter. It was hardly noticed at first until he tweeted at a famous TV anchor saying, quote, Hi, I'm on Weibo now, although I don't dare be as outspoken as you all. Ha <laughs> ha. Within days, he was forced to delete the account in light of a wave of angry comments, curses and threats. Then, in 2011, a group of young Chinese Twitter users managed to track down a lecture Fang was performing at Wuhan University. One young man going by the name Han Jui traveled to the site. On Twitter, he documented his mission. He arrived around 2 p.m. wearing a t-shirt in tribute to the artist and dissident Ai Weiwei. According to reports, he was handed an egg prepared for him by students at the university. Once inside the lecture hall, he tossed the egg at Fang Binxing, but it missed. Thinking on his feet, literally, Hang Juni took off one of his shoes and hurled it. It hit the father of the Great Firewall directly in the chest. He grabbed his other shoe and threw it too, but two staff members blocked it. According to legend, as university staff and security attempted to grab the protester, a group of students banded together to block their path. Hanjui escaped the campus on his bare feet. The students brought him a pair of sandals. After his escape, Hanjui posted on Twitter, quote, I hit the target. Immediately, he was flooded with support, with supporters offering him cash, designer clothes and shoes, tickets to Hong Kong's Disneyland, dinners at five-star restaurants, and more. One anonymous user offered him a job. Some female admirers offered things we can't describe on air. Rowan Atkinson is my personal hero. You might know Atkinson as Mr. Bean, but I first saw him as Edmund Blackadder. Why am I such a big fan of Atkinson? Well, he's an amazing comedian, obviously, but he also studied electrical engineering, like myself, so I'm totally biased. Why am I telling you about my man crush on Rowan Atkinson? Because if I wish to re-watch Blackadder on Netflix, for example, I can't, because it's not available in Israel, where I live. 
Luckily, I use ExpressVPN, which allows me to access Netflix UK as if I was actually from the UK. What's more, ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast, which means my viewing experience is as smooth as always. Actually, you can use ExpressVPN the same way with many other streaming services, Amazon Prime, BBC's iPlayer and more in almost 100 countries around the world. ExpressVPN is rated as the number one VPN service by both CNET and Wired and is also on almost every platform – phones, computers, routers, even smart TVs. Visit expressvpn.com malicious and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com malicious. We thank ExpressVPN for their support of Malicious Life. Fang Binsheng probably deserves the what we might call negative reviews he's gotten over the years. It's true that his organization, CNCERT, sat at the heart of the nationwide censorship project. But Fang is best thought of as a figurehead, not a mastermind. No one man, no single organization could have built the Great Firewall in the early 2000s. You see, now that the Great Firewall exists, it doesn't seem that crazy to us. Back in the late 90s, though, nobody really knew such a thing was possible because nothing like it had ever existed before. So if this was the first firewall of its scale, um, where did the ideas come from on how to build and get it to work from a logistical standpoint? Well, the entities dealing with this took um, quite a lead from scalable firewalls that were already existing. And um, the the key uh, objective was to make this scale and capable of uh, managing the traffic that would uh, leave. Uh, and enter the country. Building an apparatus to censor the world's largest country was just a crazy idea in the late 90s. Think about it. China is over a billion people. Have you ever tried to stop your kids from watching violent movies? It's basically impossible to get one person to not see something, let alone a billion people not seeing lots of things. So what what happened in the beginning was there was no technology to be able to handle the policies and processes uh, that the Chinese team were trying to look at. So what happened was they just threw people at it. So more and more people arrived at the team. And before long, it was a a very, very large team of over 5,000 people. Even thousands of engineers was not enough. So the the team looked at um, building the firewall in such a way where they could leverage existing technologies. There was quite a bit of customization that took place afterwards, but it was more focused on to see what was out there that could be leveraged. This notion of leveraging existing technologies is important. The Chinese government not only had to figure out how to build a firewall, but how to do so at a technological disadvantage. As we mentioned, at the turn of the millennium, China wasn't quite the technology powerhouse it is today. 
the US and Western Europe were ahead in the game, with companies like Microsoft, Cisco, and Intel paving the way in cyberspace globally. So how could China, a second-rate technology power, even begin to build the most impressive cybersecurity structure in the world? By outsourcing. It's November 2000. A researcher named Greg Walton visits a trade show called Security China 2000. It's being held in Beijing, co-organized by the Communist Party and sponsored by the Ministry of Public Safety. Once inside, he documents the scene. Quote, The trade show drew approximately 300 companies from over 16 countries, as well as 24,500 visitors from over 26 of China's provinces. The biggest names in web technology, companies that proudly attach themselves overseas to the Internet's reputation for anarchy, peddled their wares to China's secret police and security officials. End quote. Walton walks by the displays, noting just how massive the event really is. Quote, 27 exhibitors included network giants Siemens, Motorola, Cisco Systems, Sun Microsystems, and Nortel Networks. There were participating companies from the US, Israel, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Japan, and Canada, among others. The United Kingdom, world leader in closed-circuit TV, had a special section in the show. Many of the companies promote their activities as, quote-unquote, improving the quality of people's work and lives, Philips, and connecting anyone, anywhere, anytime to the resources they need, Sun Microsystems, end quote. Why is Security China 2000 this hot? Because China, only five or six years into having an internet, is still in the early stages of deciding how its national internet will one day look. The measures taken now will determine the internet for over a billion people in the years to come. In business dealings, backroom meetings and trade shows like this, the foundations of a future internet are being laid. A lot is on the line. Quote, there is enormous competition among telecommunication firms to get a share of the relatively undeveloped but rapidly expanding Chinese telecommunications market, the largest market in the world. Naturally, the lure of potential billions has attracted every major telecommunications corporation, including US-based Lucent and Cisco, European wireless giants Nokia and Ericsson, and Canada's Nortel Networks, not to mention countless others. From these companies, China is buying more than 20 billion US dollars worth of telecom equipment a year. End quote. The premier showcase at Security China 2000 is Golden Shield, a wide-ranging cyber infrastructure project. It's still in its early stages at this point, more ambition than reality. 
Among its goals are to build an advanced cyber spying system, a database for keeping records on every Chinese citizen, and a, quote, citywide fiber optic broadband network in Shanghai, enabling central authorities to monitor the interests of subscribers at the, quote unquote, edge of the network, end quote. In other words, a Shanghai-sized model of how Internet censorship could one day work nationwide. The companies that impress at Security China 2000 will go on to earn multi-million dollar contracts to sell equipment, software and personnel to the CCP. Take, as one example, the big winner of the Shanghai project, Canada-based Nortel Networks. In retrospect, it's no surprise they got the deal. Nortel has a long storied history of building the world's best internet surveillance systems. From Greg Walton, quote, As early as 1988, in a program known internally to the FBI as, quote, Operation Root Canal, nine U.S. law enforcement officials demanded that telephone companies alter their equipment to facilitate the interception of messages. All but one of the major global telecom companies refused to contemplate altering their equipment. The exception was a Canadian company, Nortel Networks, which agreed to work closely with the FBI. End quote. Nortel's Security China presentation centered around their Optera Metro portfolio. Optera was Nortel's, quote, personal internet initiative designed to enable internet service providers to better track individual internet users and their online activities, end quote. In their marketing, they left no ambiguity as to what Optera was designed to do. Quote, Imagine a network that knows who you are, where you are, and can reach you whether you're on your mobile phone or at your desktop. End quote. By building a quote-unquote personal internet for Shanghai, Nortel netted over $100 million. But this was just the beginning of a very fruitful relationship with the Chinese. Atop Aptera, they deployed the JungleMux Digital Surveillance Network, a system for connecting CCTV cameras around the city and sending all the data directly to a centralized police headquarters. They would also co-direct the research project that became the basis for the Great Firewall. Other corporations with impressive showings at Security China 2000 would go on to make multi-million dollar deals. According to Torfax, a Stanford University-based project, quote, Motorola provided wireless communication devices for China's traffic police. Sun Microsystems linked all 33 provincial police departments through computer networks. And Cisco Systems provided China with routers and firewalls in the network. End quote. This is how a guy like Randy ends up halfway across the world. I worked uh, very closely with some entities um, on the building and design of the project, um, and it was it was a lot of fun. The experience was really um, quite interesting because we got to build something on a, a massive scale. Uh, so I was learning a, a lot about it and um, pretty much uh, was involved in the uh, in the initial components of getting it all 
uh, working. Randy, our interview guest, had been educated in the West and represented one of the biggest companies in the world at the turn of the millennium. That made him very useful to the Chinese, who had few engineers with such resumes. The people that I was dealing with were very friendly. Um, they all spoke English. Uh, they spoke to me in a very respectful way. They wanted to understand what the ins and outs would be. And uh, we worked together as a team. And it was more uh, an engineering project than anything else, like building a bridge. And they'd ask, well, you know, how far can you stress this? How would you architect that? What, what would it look like to scale this? We are getting to something really important here. Notice how Randy describes his time in China. He wasn't just working alongside the Chinese. He was instructing them. China's engineers, technicians and managers benefited greatly from bringing in this kind of Western talent and expertise. Most of the people were internal Chinese uh, people. Very, very few people were from the outside. But the know-how, the knowledge of the mechanics of the kernels uh, needed to, to accelerate the project needed to come from outside. So that's where people like me were involved uh, and, and several others. Ultimately, it wasn't just that Western companies took part in the Great Firewall project. Like Randy, bringing expertise that his Chinese co-workers lacked, teaching them how to build a better censorship system, Western companies didn't merely sell equipment for the firewall. They sold better tech than the Chinese had access to. Quote, Chinese scientists have developed none of the components necessary to implement Golden Shield independently. In each case, they had relied on assistance from Western corporations, either by purchasing components as turnkey solutions or through technology transfer, either through formal business deals or in exchange for greater market access. End quote. Consider, as evidence to this point, Cisco Systems. A number of telecom equipment companies supplied the Great Firewall, including Huawei and other smaller Chinese firms. But Cisco, in particular, according to The Atlantic, was the one to supply what are called mirroring or fiber-tapping routers. These routers set at the fiber-optic gateways to China's internet, using dedicated hardware to split the information-carrying light beam traveling inside the fiber-optic cables to two identical beams. One beam would continue on its normal route through the network, while the other would carry the duplicated information to Chinese government computers. This allowed human sensors to view traffic in real time as it entered and exited the country. According to Reporters Without Frontiers, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations, Cisco did more than just supply uniquely high-tech routers for the firewall. They went one step further by actually customizing them for the task of state censorship, configuring them to flag certain quote-unquote subversive keywords. Cisco, for its part, has consistently denied that they personalized the equipment in any way. 
it's evident that the Chinese appreciated Cisco's help on the firewall project because in 2004, when China began a $100 million network infrastructure project called ChinaNet Next Carrying Network, Cisco was one of the few companies to earn a contract. Not all of you, but most of you listening to this podcast, come from countries where free speech is a right, almost a given. We take advantage of this right and forget that it could go away at any time. For 800 million people in China, the right to an open internet with the freedom of information and discourse that we enjoy in the West today was sold off to companies from the very countries where democracy and liberty are considered so essential. And what was the price tag for that sale? For most of the companies that participated, somewhere around 10 to 100 million dollars. This, listeners, is the price of free speech. The West's complicity in Chinese censorship was epitomized in the building of the Great Firewall. But it was hardly limited to that project. In fact, the modern history of Chinese censorship has always, in some way, relied on Western assistance. As Greg Walton recalled walking by the displays at Security China 2000, he noted that, quote, Following the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, the Chinese authorities tortured and interrogated thousands of people in an attempt to identify the demonstration's organizers. But even if the students and workers had resisted the terrors of the secret police, the hapless demonstrators stood little chance of anonymity. Stationed throughout Tiananmen Square is a network of UK-manufactured surveillance cameras designed to monitor traffic flows and regulate congestion. These cameras recorded everything that transpired in the months leading up to the tanks rolling into the square. In the days that followed, these images were repeatedly broadcast over Chinese state television. Virtually all the transgressors were identified in this way. Simmons Plessy, which manufactured and exported the cameras, and the World Bank, who paid for their installation, claimed they never had any idea that their technologically neutral equipment would be used in this way. End quote. In the years that followed the Great Firewall project, China continued to go to Western companies for help in quashing free speech. Google self-censored their Chinese search engine throughout the 2000s. In 2004, when the government targeted the journalist Xi Tao, it was Yahoo that supplied the personal information necessary for his arrest, which ultimately led to a decade in prison. In 2006, it was the journalist Michael Ante, and rather than having to shut it down themselves, the government simply had Microsoft take down his blog for them. Even today, there's evidence that our most important tech companies are helping propel Chinese censorship. 
In 2018, there was Dragonfly, Google's second attempt to offer a censored search engine for China, which was only shut down after details of the project leaked, sparking widespread criticism and protests among employees. Then, last year, The Intercept revealed that an American nonprofit co-founded by Google and IBM has been working with a Chinese chip manufacturer called Semptian since 2015. Together, the goal of the project has been to, quote, advance the breed of microprocessors that enable computers to analyze vast amounts of data more efficiently, end quote. So... Why is this an issue? Because Semptian's most profitable product is called Aegis, a massively powerful spying tool which allows the Chinese government to track citizens' movement in real time and even record phone conversations and messages. So Google and IBM working with Semptian on data analysis is like working on chemistry with the Unabomber. In the end, the corporations that earned a quick buck off the Great Firewall would come to reap what they sought. By 2003, with the Great Firewall live nationwide, China finally had their fully censored, completely controlled national network. And they weaponized it to cripple or outright block Western companies from selling their products and services to Chinese citizens. Today, instead of Yahoo and Google, there's Baidu. Skype is banned. With Cisco machines deployed nationwide, Huawei had plenty of sample material to steal and then use to dominate the markets in East Asia and Africa. But this story isn't just about who made money and who didn't, of course. It's much deeper than that. It's about responsibility and the moral foundations that we claim to hold dear in this part of the world. A decade after the Great Firewall was finished, an advocacy group took Cisco to federal court. They argued that the company's business with the Chinese facilitated the torture of thousands of members of a religious group. In one of the most regrettably unknown stories in recent technology history, Cisco Systems was being accused of aiding crimes against humanity. On our next episode of Malicious Life, we explore good and evil, and whether good engineers, good people, are responsible for political strife, torture, and persecution in our world today. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Have you or someone you know worked on projects relating to suppressing freedom of speech in China or any other type of project whose goal was, how shall we put it, less than 100% ethical? Tell us about your experience and thoughts and I'll share them with the rest of our listeners on our next episode. You can DM me on Twitter at at Ranlevy, that's R-A-N-L-E-V-I, or at Malicious Life, or email me at ran at ranlevy.com. Naturally, if you wish to remain anonymous, 
that's not an issue. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer. Does your organization have a story to tell? Let us tell that story for you in the form of a podcast. And by the way, it could also be an internal-facing podcast geared toward the organization's employees. For example, we recently created a podcast for a large multinational tech company about cultural diversity. The goal of the company was to promote mutual respect and understanding among its many employees who come from very different backgrounds, from the Far East to the Deep South. It was a fun project and we really enjoyed making that podcast. So, does your organization need a podcast? Talk to me at ran at ranlevy.com. A big thank you to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye. Bye. Oh my